0: Beach sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. I'm glad to see everyone too. Uh, If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Brenna Rubio. I'm the other pastor here at City Church and I am also thrilled for the new year to come. I'm also a little tired this morning and I bet I am not the only one, maybe not the only one who, you know, you're just moving a little bit more slowly this morning. It has been an interesting season. I think often, like the couple of days after Christmas, there's like some tiredness. And and I just know for many of us, there was some extra buildup this season, you know, whether it was just kind of negotiating and figuring out what the holiday was going to look like, different things going on with our family and with our friends. Um, I just I just know a lot of us are coming in this morning tired. We just want to thank you for being here, for coming and bringing your tiredness here. That is actually a beautiful gift. You know, it's kind of like, there are the kinds of friends that you're willing to have over, you know, back in non-quarantine times, and you're willing to have them over when your house is fancy and everything's put together, right? And you've got like a great meal that you're going to put on a table. And then there are the friends that you're willing to let come over when the laundry has piled up you know, and all you've got to stick, you know, all you've got to feed them is maybe some like boxed mac and cheese or something. Right. But like, you're willing to let them in to your tiredness and your mess. That's what I feel like this morning. Thank you for being willing to show up. And, and I'm showing up tired this morning. This was definitely a morning of just like, Hey, I'm throwing on the rag over my messy bedhead hair. And this is the way it's going to be this morning, but we're going to be together. So we're starting out this morning with a poem that I have actually been sitting with all this season. Uh, It's a poem about after Christmas, but it's been in my head for this entire month. And so I want to share it with you this morning. It's written by a theologian and civil rights leader named Howard Thurman. It's called When the Song of the Angels is Stilled. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins, to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. I loved this poem, this idea that there is a work of Christmas And it's actually just starting. Even here in this tired moment where you're sitting there with your PJs and your your mess from the holidays all around you, that we get to take a breath and kind of regather and think what is this work of Christmas? And so this morning, we're just gonna curl up with some stories that I think might start taking us in this direction. That's about all the energy I have for this morning, right? Like this is actually what I wanna spend my next week doing. I wanna curl up with some stories, whether they're you know on Netflix or they're ones I can hold in my hand, I'm ready to curl up with some stories. So let's do that together this morning. The first thing we're just gonna to notice to start out is that this poem is inspired by a story and it's the story of Jesus stepping out kind of into public ministry for the first time he was born that tiny little baby raised up we have a few little kind of vignettes of him as he was growing up and and what that was like for him and his family but now he's kind of emerging out of sort of um, obscurity people don't know who he is to people going oh oh jesus who is oh He's going to be a teacher. He's going to have some wisdom. And so the way this happens is he's in his hometown synagogue. And as they do, different people read each week, kind of like here at City Church. And and he's invited to read the scripture that morning. And so he stands up and he reads the scripture that we just heard in that poem, all about the lost and the broken, the hungry, releasing the prisoner, rebuilding the nations. This is the scripture that he reads. And he has this sort of mic drop moment where he says, today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, right? Boom, this is who I am. This is what I'm gonna bring. It's this kind of awesome moment. And so this really is the moment where the work of Christmas is beginning because Jesus is getting started. So we're gonna pick up the story from there this morning and talk more about what that work might look like, the shape of it, how it might actually affect us as we go into our new year. So our friend, Ellie Dote is gonna read for us this morning, right where this story leaves off on that mic drop moment. Go ahead and take it away, Ellie. All spoke well of him
1: and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely, you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way.
0: People of God, this is the word of God.
1: Thanks Thanks be to God.
0: God. Thank you so much, Ellie. Appreciate you reading for us this morning. Um, What an interesting story, right? Okay, we start with the first bit and the people are all amazed. There's, wow, the gracious words dripping from his lips. They love what Jesus has just told him about this work of Christmas. And then Jesus says some stuff and all of a sudden at the end, the people are chasing him out of town to the brink of a cliff because they want to push him off. Something has happened, right? wow, there has been a big shift. I I love this story. You know, there is this sense sometimes of leaders, you know, we talk about not believing our own press, right, of just kind of like that people, uh, I'll speak for myself, like as a pastor, you know, a, about a month ago, we had this this wonderful appreciation time. You guys were so, so incredible, such sweet words, and and they were deeply appreciated. You know, those are Our notes that Bill and I are gonna read over from time to time, you know, just kind of like, all right, it's worth it, making a difference. There's such great reassurance, right? And yet I also know I have to hold that with some tension. I have to not believe my own press too much, right? Like I need to remember that my family, they see me when I'm not being so great. They see me when I'm tired and I'm cranky and I'm irritated, right? That, that you guys see me in some of my best moments. And so I have to hold with a grain of salt or maybe a big hole keeping scoopful, um, the way I'm seen publicly versus who I really am. And so I think there's some of that going on there, right? Where Jesus kind of going like, okay, there's who you think I am and there's who I really am. And I wanna actually make sure you know the difference But then with Jesus, I think it's going even a little bit deeper than that, because the people that he's comparing himself to, and we're going to dive in deep on these, but just as like a first glance, he's saying, Hey, do you remember those prophets? Like these are some of these are, these are the big names, some of the big names for the people that he's talking to for uh, the Jewish people. He's saying, Hey, those great prophets that you hold in such reverence. I'm kind of like those guys. And at first, that may not seem very humble. But he's saying, but you know what? You guys misremember those guys too. You misunderstand them. We have a tendency to do that to our prophets, to our leaders, to want to sort of take who they are and make them who we want them to be. Case in point, for instance, might be Martin Luther King Jr. You know, he's super popular today, right? All sorts of people want to quote MLK. But there are pieces of MLK that some people like better than others. We all love his nonviolence. Don't go into the streets. Don't be violent. We love that part of MLK. But what about the parts where he was against war? What about the parts where he was deeply concerned about capitalism? And he favored reparations for slavery? What about that piece of who MLK was? What about his deep concerns about racism? He didn't think it was going to be an easy fix. thought there were deep roots in our society that were I man it was going to take it was going to take a lot for us to get at the roots of the problem of racism. Those quotes from Martin Luther King Jr.. They don't circulate quite as widely. And that's what Jesus is saying here when it comes to these two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. He was like, do you remember who they really were? You hold them up in great revere now, but do you really understand who they were, the God they were pointing to? Do you really get me? Are you really willing to go where I'm going to lead you? And clearly when he points that out, their basic answer is, oh, no, we don't like that at all. It was outrageous, they were outraged. And so I wanna, let's actually go into those stories a little more deeply and go, who is Jesus telling us that he is? How, how is he, um, how's he planning on continuing this work that he started? What does that have to say to us today? So our first story is about this prophet named Elijah. And some of you may have heard some of these stories before. Some of you may not. Um, You know, if you were raised in a house, for instance, or maybe you have for your own kids, like a storybook Bible, these stories don't usually make the storybook Bible, even a good one, right? Like these just aren't, they're they're not, it's not Noah's Ark. You know, it's not David and Goliath and, and they just don't make the storybook bible i will admit for me growing up my parents they were they were good conservative evangelical christian parents and we had like the encyclopedia we had the children's encyclopedia and so i had weird stories about floating axe heads and things um definitely don't make the children's storybook bible uh, so we're going into some of the the stories this morning that don't make the children's storybook bible but they're actually really good and so we're just gonna we're gonna wander through them today So we're going back into the history of Israel. This is in the book of 1 Kings, and it's a story about Elijah. In fact, this is really kind of when he is starting to emerge onto the scene uh, in, in Jewish history. And so Jesus says this, I assure you, there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, the widows in Israel but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon." Okay, so here's what's going on. Here is the story. There has been a time of drought, which means a time of famine all over Israel. And it's not just any drought. It's not just any famine. It's one that God has actually brought to his people because they have been chasing idols. And more than that, this man, Elijah, this prophet, is sort of responsible because God basically says, hey, you've got the power. If you pray for rain, it'll rain. And if you don't, it won't. And so again, Elijah, though he's popular in Jesus' day, he's unpopular at this time, right? Because he's the guy who's in control of the rain and there's drought. And he's so unpopular that God actually sends him into hiding. Like basically says, okay, you go hide down by this creek, by this brook, you'll have just enough water to drink. God says, I'll send you food. It's gonna come by a raven when it, which not only is it you know, kind of weird and um, supernatural, but ravens are considered unclean. So God is using an unclean bird to send him food every day. Really interesting, right? But so now where our story really starts is that eventually even that brook dries up. And now Elijah, this man of God is, he's, he's starving he's dehydrated he he needs another source of provision and god says leave israel go outside of your own people group go over here to this land of the gentiles and there find a widow and she is going to i have directed a widow there to supply you with food so we get to this first part where it's just like hey this is crazy because it's a gentile first god's feeding him with a raven who's unclean and now Now he's, he's sending him to the outsider to look for for provision. And widow at this time, is like, it's code word for someone who's really, really poor. So we have someone who's on the outskirts and who's really, really poor. This is not obvious, right? Like God could say, hey, I'm going to send you to the wealthiest person in town and they're going to feed you. That might make a little more sense to us, right? The wealthiest person in town might actually have food stored up, have food to give, but he says, no, I'm going to. I'm going to send you outside your own people to a widow. And so Elijah does what God says, and and he goes where God has instructed him, and, and he finds this widow, and he asks her for water. He asks her for a bit of bread, and this is how she replies in verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. How do you respond when you're Elijah and you've been sent to make a request of this woman who says, I have nothing, barely anything. I expect to die soon. Well, Elijah, who Jesus says he resonates with, I'm like Elijah. He goes ahead and he makes the outrageous request that God has given him to make. and He says, will you trust God and feed me anyway? Feed me first and God will take care of you. I really struggled reading this and thinking about this story this morning. How does he do this? How does this work? How is that right? And I sat with it for a while and something finally occurred to me and I started to wonder how I was picturing Elijah in this moment. And I realized I was picturing him as a man of power. It's the great Elijah, the famous prophet. He's a man of power and position in my head, making this request. And then it occurred to me, no, this is Elijah, the man without a home, who's been hiding by a brook for years with nothing but a little water and and occasionally some meat to eat. He looks like any of our neighbors right now without a home. He's the poorest of the poor. He too is near death. He too is starving. And so when the widow looks at him I wonder if she just doesn't see, oh, this is someone like me, even with the cultural divides. Oh, this is someone, someone too, who needs compassion, who needs help. She ends up saying yes to Elijah's request. And every time I've heard this story, which admittedly isn't a lot because it's not in the you know the Hall of Fame stories. But the implication is always that it was because of her great faith, because she believed what Elijah said that God would take care of her. And I think maybe, but maybe it was also just compassion. Just, I see you, and, and what little I have to give. Maybe you need it too. She says, yes. And God does fulfill God's promises and and her supplies miraculously are just never ending from that point. She always has enough flour. She always has enough oil. But for me, I think the question that it brings me to is how do I picture Jesus? Do I do the same thing with him? Do I have a tendency to wanna see the Jesus of power? the Jesus of of position, the Jesus who has influence? Or do I see him as the, the humble man who didn't have a home, who wandered around, who was fed out of the kindness of strangers? He hung out with the prostitutes and the bleeding women. And sometimes he took care of them. Sometimes he healed them. Always there was kindness. Always there was love. But you know what? Sometimes they gave him a cup of water. And sometimes they fed him. Sometimes they were the ones who gave. Am I willing to see Jesus that way? It seemed like even in his time, people got confused about that all the time. There's a passage in Matthew 25, and and Jesus is talking about sort of end times. He's talking about how it will all be one day. And he says, some of you, I will recognize and I will, the times that you gave me water, the times that you fed me, the times that you clothed me. And the people are so confused. The righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick? We're in prison and go to visit you. And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Do we see Jesus in these places or are we missing him? What if Jesus actually wants to connect with us in the places that may scare us most that we may feel the most shame over the places where we have experienced hunger or loneliness and rejection, illness, brokenness, need. For some of us, this is a thought that can bring a lot of comfort because we are intimately connected with our need. It's just, it's staring us in the face day by day. The idea that Jesus is one of us he gets us he meets us in these places oh, it's just really really good we resonate with the Jesus who showed up as a tiny baby who now we see in the immigrant in the detention center in our neighbors without homes in the mothers who are struggling to feed their kids but for others of us, it's harder. We haven't learned to embrace those weak and broken parts of ourselves. And so I think the next story, the next story is really for us. Because Jesus goes on, and now he's going to talk about a second prophet, the prophet Elisha, who we hear about in the book of Second Kings. He says this in verse 27. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. So again, we have a story saying, okay, there were lepers in Israel, but that's not who God sent the prophet to. Once again, the prophet was sent to the outside, but now not to a widow, not to someone who was obviously poor, obviously in need. Now the prophet is going to heal a man of power. Naaman is a commander of an enemy army. So in a lot of ways, he is a man of power, a position, a privilege. It's just that he has this one really glaring, obvious condition, he's a leper. And this this pushes him again towards the outside. He's unclean, he's reviled. There's so much fear around this condition uh, because of the the sort of way that it affects the system, eventually just gross disfigurements of the body and eventually death. It's a condition with all sorts of fear associated with it. So what what will he do? Well, what happens in the story is that in his household, there is a young Israelite girl and she's been enslaved by his household. Her family was conquered and she was taken into slavery, taken into servitude. And yet she looks at him and she has compassion. And she says, I know, I know a prophet who could heal you. And what's sort of amazing in the story is that this, this great commander, I mean, maybe he's just desperate, but he listens to the young enslaved foreigner in his household. And so he goes to his king who goes to the other king. Obviously, this must be a time of relative peace between the two countries. And and the the Israelite king actually doesn't quite know what to do because prophets and kings sometimes exist in some tension, which is probably good, probably healthy. We might need a little bit more of that these days. Um, So there's some tension, but eventually the prophet Elisha gets wind of what's happening. And he says, yes, send him to me. I will meet him. I will help him. And so Naaman goes to Elisha's home. And this is what happens once he arrives there. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, which is a nearby river, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And we think this is good news, but no, the story continues. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his wand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Naaman's angry. He went to all this work. He travels. He arrives. He gets the answer. And he says, that's not the answer I was looking for. Ah, such a proud man. Here's some of what's going on here. He's thinking, I showed up, right? Maybe I'm I'm in the courtyard and I'm great and I'm important. And the prophet should come out and recognize me in my importance. The prophet should come, defer to me, come out and meet me in person. And he didn't. And so my pride is hurt. I'm offended. And then the instructions that the prophet sent me to go just wash and water? This isn't what I was expecting. I wanted a spectacle from the man of importance, of power. You're just telling me to go wash and water? I had better water back home. Ah, oh, the pride at work in this story. But then an amazing thing happens again. Because once again, some people that you would not expect Naaman to listen to speak to him. And he does. He listens. In verses 13 and 14, the story goes on. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean again like that of a young boy. He listened, they corrected him. They said, it's such a small thing. You would do a big thing. Why won't you do the small thing? It's so interesting in this story, right? Because as much as he came to the prophet Elisha about a physical problem, before the physical healing can come, there's a deeper healing that has to happen. There's this deeper work of what's going on in your soul, Naaman, that you can't, you can't accept the healing that's being offered you your pride is getting in the way, but he humbles himself. He listens, he follows the simple instructions. And now from this place of humility, he finally gets that audience with the prophet that he was hoping for because he goes back, not in demand this time, but in gratitude. And we see him standing before Elisha saying, now I know, there's no God in all the world, except in Israel. The inner change results in outward healing. And now that his pride is out of the way, he's able to make that connection, to have that audience. So I wonder this morning in the places where I'm like Naaman, where I'm privileged, where I'm guarded, where I'm prideful, Am I willing to be humbled? Am I gonna listen to the people around me, even and maybe especially the people that maybe the world holds in less high regard? What if God has a special word of wisdom, especially from the people the world tends to hold in less high regard? Am I willing to be healed at that heart level? Do I wanna connect with Jesus from that place of humility? These are the stories that Jesus told, that Jesus reminded the people of in that first public declaration of his ministry. And these were the stories that outraged them they did not want to hear that Jesus' heart was for the Gentiles. They didn't want to hear that his heart was for the widows. They didn't want to hear his heart was for the proud who would learn humility. That's not the kind of prophet they were in the market for, but it's the kind of prophet, the kind of Savior that God has given us. Our friend Rachel Held Evans, a writer who I probably quote more than I should, but man, she's just that good. She says this, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. And that's why the people were offended. That's why they were outraged that day. Their bounded sets, who's in and who's out, they were getting disrupted. But we do that too, right? We all have our ways of setting up our system of morality, our system of religiosity. And the crazy thing is, we are some of the people who would be excluded. Someone, somewhere, we are out of their bounded set. None of us would make it in with everyone if we lived under those rules. But that's just not how Jesus was playing. That's not the world he came to set up and restore. He came for the Gentiles. He came for the widows. He came for the commanders who would learn humility. You know, um, when I read stories like these, often the invitation is to say, who do I resonate with? Who am I in the story? And this morning it's stories within stories. So many characters you could choose with. But I think I wanna end it a little differently today. Say, when am I the people who are outraged? When am I the people, the person driving Jesus off the cliff? Because sometimes I'm that person. God help me. When am I the widow? What parts of my heart need to know that Jesus comes close. Jesus identifies with poverty, brokenness, and need. What am I naming? Full of pride. But willing to learn humility. And when do I get to be like Jesus, breaking down the gates?